0: This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter thirteen of Up The River by Oliver Optic A Night Lost in the Storm At eleven o'clock we changed the course of the Sylvania to southwest half west, which brought the gale nearly on the beam. The wind was blowing but little, if anything, short of a hurricane. A great billow struck against the side of the vessel, and the house on deck with tremendous force. It seemed just as though immense boulders were hurled against the planking that enclosed my stateroom, the galley, and the engine room. The sea swept over the hurricane deck and struck heavily upon the planks overhead. Suddenly, I heard a noise over my head as I stood at the wheel, which sounded like the report of a heavy cannon. I thought the sea had broken a hole through. In another instant, the steamer was rolling with double the violence of a few minutes before. What was that noise, Hop? I asked when I saw that no water was pouring down upon us. It was a foresail, sir. It has been blown out of the bolt ropes," replied Hop coolly, and he seemed to be incapable of anything like fear. We have lost the reef foresail. And that is what makes her roll so much worse than she did five minutes ago. Undoubtedly, he was right. The sail had steadied her more than we could have imagined, and now she rolled like a log in a mill race. The sea struck the side of my stateroom as though a rock weighing a ton had been cast against it by some giant of the sea or the storm. I was afraid our house on deck would be carried away by the tempest. On board of a large vessel, the loss of a house on deck was a matter of no serious consequences. It was entirely different with the Sylvania, for the loss of it would open the hole to the entrance of the sea. The deluge of water would put out the fire in the furnaces, disabling the engine. The result must be the loss of the vessel and all on board of her. I trembled when I thought of it. Another mountain billow struck the house a little farther aft. I was not willing to wait for another sea to strike her in what I regarded as her weakest point and we put the helm down. We must give up on our course for the safety of the vessel. The steamer made a terrible plunge as we shifted the helm, but we soon got her across the sea. Now she pitched instead of rolling. I called to the engineer through the speaking tube to give her but about half speed for it made her labor more heavily to drive into the sea. I calculated that this rate of speed would keep her at about stationary on the water. I soon found that she was falling astern. I directed the engineer to give her more steam. I soon gauged it so that she had headway enough to keep her up to the seas without forcing her through them. A sort of equilibrium was established, which gave her an easier position though it was by no means an easy one. Her bow rose so that the deck must have been at an angle of 45 degrees, and then she dived down from the top of a big wave at about the same angle. Our port and starboard, as well as the masthead light, were burning, and we had closed in the pilot house so that we could see nothing ahead. But I found the steamer was manageable when I had got her head to the sea and I sent Hop Tosford to call the mate and Buck Lingley. I could not tell what might happen. I felt that all hands should be on deck. I wondered they had not put in an appearance before. But they were all used to this sort of thing, for we had been through a tempest almost as bad in the Gulf of St. Lawrence, and several milder ones at other times. The water swashed a fore and aft, but no longer pounded the house on deck. It poured over the bow so that it was not safe to put a man on the lookout there. The only thing we had to fear while we were lying in this manner was a collision with some other vessel. The water poured into the pilot house so that we could not keep the windows open. I sent Buck to the hurricane deck with directions to lash himself to the foremast and keep the shelter of the dome of the pilot-house when i had done this and heard buck on the deck above me i felt that i had met the last and most imminent danger of the hour though the steamer was still laboring heavily against the tremendous head-seas she appeared to be holding her position in safety i gave the helm to washburn and ben bowman for it required two to move the wheel promptly in that violent sea And went to pay a visit to the cabin for i suppose the passengers were enduring torments of suspense and terror on the way i looked into my stateroom the captain of that wrecked bark appeared to be still asleep and i did not disturb him following one of the lifelines we always bent on in a gale i reached the after companionway like everything in the shape of an opening on deck it was securely fastened but I had a key and descended the cabin stairs, locking the door behind me. Most of the passengers were still up. Some had retired to their berths, though probably not to sleep. My father and Mr. Tiffany were playing chess and did not seem to be at all disturbed by the war of the elements. Colonel Shepard was holding his wife upon a sofa and Owen and Gus were skylarking in the after part of the cabin. Isn't it terrible, Captain Alec? "'asked Mrs. Shepherd in trembling tones. "'I must say it was about as bad as anything I ever was out in, "'though we had it about as bad once on Lake Superior,' "'I replied as cheerfully as the occasion required. "'Do you think there is any danger?' "'I don't think there is just now,' I answered. "'The steamer is working very well at present, "'much better than she was an hour ago.' "'I thought the water would break through upon us at one time,' "'added the nervous lady.' i was afraid it would we had our foresail blown out of the boat ropes and she made bad work of it after that but we have laid her to now and she is behaving as well as any vessel of this size can in such a sea when do you suppose it will be over asked the lady anxiously it is a southeast gale or rather hurricane and probably it will not last long I shall look for better weather by sunrise, if not before, I replied as I left the cabin. On my way back to the pilot house, I stopped in at the engine room. I found Moses Brickland seated in his leather-cushioned divan, watching the movements of the engine. Notwithstanding the uneasy movement of the vessel, the machinery seemed to be working very regularly. How does she go, Moses? I asked. She's done very well since you headed her up to the sea. "'he answered without taking his gaze from the engine. "'At one time I thought the sea would break in upon us "'and swamp the fires. "'It would have been all up with us then. "'I felt so myself, and I headed her up to the sea "'when I saw that it was no longer safe "'to keep her on her course. "'But I suppose you want to turn in, Moses.' "'I know I am perfectly satisfied "'to keep my place here till morning,' he replied. "'I want Ben Bowman at the wheel with Washburn.' "'She steers so hard in this sea that we need to change hands every hour. "'But I hope we shall soon be able to relieve you,' I added. "'I don't have to work very hard, and I can stand it very well till morning.' "'I returned to the wheelhouse. "'It was about two bells or one in the morning. "'The tempest had not increased in the last hour, "'and I hope we had seen the worst of it. "'We will work in the engine just enough to keep the steamer's head up to the sea.' The Sylvania behaved so well in her present position that I dismissed the port watch at two in the morning, but I could not think of turning in myself while there was any possibility of trouble ahead. I remained in the pilot house with Washburn while Buck Lingley was on the lookout on the hurricane deck. We held our position till about four in the morning when it was evident that the gale was breaking, though the sea was still very heavy. Light on the port quarter, said Buck, at one of the small windows of the pilot house in front of his station. I rushed over to the port side, but the windows were so covered with water that I could see nothing. It was raining hard, as it had been since midnight. I went on deck, grasping a lifeline to keep me from being knocked over by the flood of water that flowed down from the forecastle. I reached the ladder and went up to the hurricane deck. I suppose the light the lookout had seen was on some vessel. It was at least ten miles different, and after a time I satisfied myself that it was a revolving light. It also flashed, and I was confident it was eight or ten miles different. I was rather bewildered, for I had not expected to find a light in that direction. I hastened down to the pilot house to consult the coast pilot. I reviewed the course we had followed after leaving the wreck bark. By our reckoning, we were about twenty miles to the southward of Cary's Fourth Light when we headed the steamer to the eastward. We had kept the screw turning all the time, and I suppose we had been making some headway during the five hours we had been on this track. What was the light then? We were headed directly into the Bahama Islands, and I knew we had not gone far enough to place any light in those islands on our port quarter. THE DESCRIPTION IN THE BOOK OF CARRY'S FOURTH LIGHT CORRESPONDED WITH WHAT I HAD MADE OUT BY OBSERVATION. WE ARE ABOUT TEN MILES TO THE SOUTHEAST OF CARRY'S FOURTH LIGHT, I SAID TO WASHBURN WHEN I HAD SATISFIED MYSELF OF THE FACT. IMPOSSIBLE! THAT WOULD PUT US ABOUT WHERE WE WERE WHEN YOU CALLED ALL HANDS LAST NIGHT, EXCLAIMED THE MATE. THE LIGHT IS ABOUT WHERE IT WAS WHEN WE BEGAN TO GO TO THE SOUTHWARD AT TEN LAST EVENING, I REPLIED but we have been going to the southward and eastward for at least five hours. It does not appear that we have gone at all, I continued, looking over the pages of the book. We have been drifting all the time. The steamer is in the gulf stream, and that with the fierce wind has carried her a distance from where I supposed she was. I find that in a strong easterly wind the gulf stream sets to the westward and runs in among the Keys. I have no doubt now that this is the reason why the bark struck last night on the rocks to the southward of French Reef. It appears from what you say that we have not carried enough steam to prevent us from being drifted to the westward as well as to the northward, added Washburn. This is the fact we have been drifting about north-northwest. In a few hours more we should have been on the reef. Ring the speed bell. It was plain enough by this time, when it was almost broad daylight, that the force of the gale was spent. In less than an hour the wind subsided entirely, and the wind whirled to the south, then to the west, and finally settled into the northwest. We made our course to the southward. The clouds rolled away, and the sun rose bright and beautiful after one of the hardest nights I had ever known. The wind began to freshen from the northwest, and at six o'clock we had all sail on her. We all wondered what had become of the Islander. Captain Blastblow was evidently well acquainted with the navigation of the Florida reefs, or he would not have taken his vessel through the dangerous channel he had chosen. But I was too tired to talk much, and I slept an hour in Washburn's berth until breakfast time. When I waked, I found the captain of the bark sitting in a chair in the state room. End of chapter